listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, before we get into it, I wanted to acknowledge that this is our 250th episode. And I know, it's weird how numbers get assigned meaning, but it's nice sometimes to recognize milestones, even the arbitrary ones. As I think about 250 episodes, I think about 250 interviews, 250 hours set aside to sit with people who are coming forward to share their story, first with me and then with all of you. I think of the tears and the laughter and the meaningful silences. I think of the risk of going public with something that can feel so private and personal. It's fitting, actually, that this episode ended up being our 250th. Because this show, at its core, is all about putting grief into words. Words that hopefully help anyone who listens to better understand their own grief and the grief of others. It's fitting because today's guest, Colin Campbell, just released his new book. And the book's title is Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. This book came out of Colin's experience with devastating grief. Grief that left him feeling completely untethered, and fearful that he might lose his mind. In early summer of 2019, Colin, his wife Gail, and their two teenage kids, Ruby and Hart, were on their way back from checking out a house they hoped to buy near Joshua Tree, California. Colin was driving and had just made a turn into a gas station when a driver, who was drunk and high, hit their car, killing both Ruby and Hart. As Colin describes himself, he was Ruby and Hart's dad before he was anything else in his life. With their deaths, he was left wondering who he was and how he was going to live without them. Early in their grief, Gail and Colin kept hearing the same phrase from people. It's one that many of us, including me, have said to people in grief. The phrase is, there are no words. But this phrase didn't comfort Colin. It left him feeling more alone and lost. Colin found that he actually needed to put his grief into words, to talk about his kids and what it meant to lose them. Doing so helped him feel closer to Ruby and Hart, and to the community of family and friends he needed to stay afloat. Colin and his family value kindness and humor, and those two things come through so strongly in our conversation. Colin, thank you for making time to be part of Grief Out Loud today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I know we're going to talk quite a bit about your book that is coming out, Finding the Words, that I was just frantically rereading just before we signed on to this interview today, because I feel like I could reread it every day for the next couple of months and still not absorb all that's in that book. Um, But before we get there, how's your grief today? How's your grief feeling in this moment? Yeah, it's interesting. um, Having the book come out it means that I'm I'm talking more about Ruby and Hart and my grief than usual. I, I talk about I talk about both those things frequently, but not nearly as frequently as right now. And so it's very present. 
um, it's sort of forefront in my mind uh, as I'm as I'm sort of moving through this process of a book coming out. It feels good that I'm so engaged in the grief, but it also feels strange in that it's so public now. Uh, so people are writing to me talking about, you know, I just read this passage about your grief for your children and and uh, and then also people are reaching out to me with their own stories of grief, you know, on Instagram. And that can be overwhelming as well, hearing these just traumatic stories. But I, I think I think in the end it it feels good to be so engaged. Yeah. Hard but good is how my grief is feeling to, right now. Such a shift for you as I think about Hart and Ruby were killed in 2019. So we're coming up on year four. Yeah. And thinking back to those early days of grief, weeks and months and first year, two years of being in such a place of receiving support. Mm -hmm. And like, no, thank you. I cannot take in anybody else's story <laughs> or provide any support. And now here you are people coming to you like, thank you for writing this or please hear my story or please be a receiver of my pain and my grief. Yeah. Yeah. It feels, um, I don't want to overstate it. Like it's a sacred thing, but it, it, it does have that feeling a little bit, like you said, of holding somebody else's grief for a moment. It's, it's powerful to be on the receiving end uh, and, and being in a place where I, where I feel like I can respond. I do have a thought that I'd like to share with them and I'd like to hear what they have to say. Yeah. It is very different than the early grief. You're right. When the, there was no room at all for anything else for me. Yeah, I couldn't talk about the weather. Let <laughs> alone <laughs> <laughs> somebody's grief. Yeah. No space for small talk when devastation is sitting right in front of you. Yeah. You know, I feel really like it was a, a present in a way to read your book because I got to learn about Ruby and Hart. And I feel uh -huh. like after reading your book, I have such clear pictures in my mind of these two teenagers and their personalities. <laughs> and I mean, of course, I could never know them uh, in that way. But yeah, what a gift to me to get to know them. And I wonder if you might share a bit with our listeners who don't know Ruby and Hart, like, what would you want them to know about your kids today? Yeah. Well, I think I think about their love. That's that's what I wrote about in the eulogy, just about how how much love they brought to the table for each other and for us in the world. They were so generous and gracious with their love. I, I tell the story in, in the eulogy about how uh, Hart would pretend to be excited about anime and and cosplay and manga because that's what Ruby loved. He just wanted to be spent time with her. And one time I, I pulled him aside and he was like, you know, what, dad, I don't actually like any of this stuff at all. <laughs> it's like the secret, but he, but he never told her. He just kept pretending, but that he loved hip hop. So he had all these songs he was so eager to share and so many music videos and Ruby would watch them all and get all excited. And she'd know about all the songs and, and musicians that he was into. But she kind of hated hip hop. <laughs> she just pretended to love it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he never found out. So it was quite extraordinary how they both were um, fooling each other out of love, you know, just to spend more time together. Yeah, but he, he was just this hilarious clown. He was like the class clown with the with a sweetheart. He wasn't the, the class clown that was trying to mess things up or be a jerk. He was he was the the kindest guy in the room.
And, uh, and he got that from his big sister because she was like this proud gay warrior for social justice. That's kind of how I describe her. Yeah. Yeah. I get such a sense of like protectors and advocates mm, yes. for each other and for each other in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Ruby really, I mean, it's, it seems strange to say it, but the people at, at her school told me this while she was still alive. So it wasn't like a, you know, now that she's dead, she must have been an angel. While she was alive, they came up to me and said, Ruby changed the culture of this school in terms of bullying. She was like a hero. So it's pretty powerful. She would protect the younger kids, you know. Um, and because she was so cool and proud of herself, but such a nerd, <laughs> uh, that she just naturally, the nerds gravitated toward her for protection. And yeah. Do you take any credit? <laughs> well, I do. In our house, we do value kindness. Uh, so they definitely grew up with parents who care about kindness, kindness towards others. Uh, and we took them at a very early age, you know, March for social justice and gay rights. And so I guess we had that, that culture, but, but their kindness was, was all their own. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit more with me. I feel like I just learned another new thing about <laughs> Ruby and Hart. And it seemed like so much of your process after Ruby and Hart were killed was about talking about them and sharing with them and engaging with your community and your family and your friends about them to continue to tell their story. And, you know, the title of your book says, you know, finding the words, and mm. which I know is in reaction to your favorite phrase in grief, which is... <laughs> There are no words and all the other ones that come with that, like I can't imagine or, mm. you know, there's a hundred of them. Yeah. And what do you remember about that realization of like how much that phrase wasn't going to work for you in your grief? Yeah. Well, well a, a couple of things factored into that. One was, it was just shocking how often it was said to us in those early days. It, it, it was just like, a, it felt relentless. People would say it to our face, they'd email it, they'd text it, they'd write it in cards. It was like, oh my God, where did this come from, this phrase? And then it was in contrast to some of Ruby and Hart's friends who did have words. Those kids never said there are no words. They came right up and they started telling us words. And the words were how much they loved Ruby and Hart and how much they'll miss them, how meaningful they were in their lives. And I was like, these kids know what to say. <laughs> That's exactly what to say, how beautiful. Uh, it was only the adults who just would become tongue-tied. So there was that moment. And then there was the moment very early on with sitting Shiva. So I'm not Jewish, but my wife is Jewish. And we raised Ruby and Hart as Jews, and they got barn bat mitzvah, and we were active members of our synagogue. We followed the Jewish rituals of, of, of mourning. And so we sat Shiva for the first week after the funeral. And at first, I, I was like, what do you mean people are going to come to my house each night? That's, that's insane. I want to be all by myself. I'm just in this ball of, of raw grief. I can't have a bunch of people in my home. And yet when they arrived and my rabbi turned to us and said, do you, you know, after saying some prayers, do you want to, do you want to share anything? And I suddenly discovered I did. I really did want to share. I wanted to talk about Ruby and Hart and about my grief. All day long, I was this sort of my wife and I, Gail, were, were stewing in this, in this pain, this overwhelming feeling of, of just like passively receiving agony. <laughs> and then having people come to our home 
suddenly allowed us to be active. We could, we could talk, we could say something about this, and it helped us to process it. Each night, we would say something different about where we were in that moment. Just like you asked, you know, how is your grief today? It was different each day of Shiva, and we had, and we had something we wanted to say about it. Uh, and that was just so helpful. And to the community, because they also got up and shared stories. So they would talk about Ruby and Hart, uh, funny stories, sweet stories, moving stories. And we all cried and laughed together. And that was revelatory to me about what it means to grieve. So in that, so often the words are, we think about words in relation to other people, right? We use words to communicate with other people, but we also use words to talk to ourselves and to communicate with ourselves. And mm. I'm wondering what what grief was like for you in those solitary times with your grief, missing your kids. Yeah. I still felt this urge to find words because it, it felt formless to me, grief. It felt like this just unending, formless thing that I was stuck in. And to be able to articulate it, how, how I felt, even if it was not that articulate an expression of that, it helped to sort of shape the grief. It helped to make it feel like it wasn't so overwhelming. And so I journaled. I journaled for the first, through that whole first year. I journaled basically every day. And then as I was journaling, just trying to find the words, I started writing a, uh, what I thought was a stand-up routine. <laughs> um, uh, because I, I, we're, we're kind of a funny family. We enjoy comedy. My wife for several decades was a, a comedy writer, still is a comedy writer for television and, uh, and film. And we all appreciated a good joke. So I started writing these darkly comedic thoughts about what it means to move through early acute grief. That helped me. It helped me to understand what was happening. It gave me some perspective. And I started writing it longer and longer. I showed it to Gail uh, when it was just like two pages long. And she said, keep writing. And I did. And, and it turned into a full, full length show, which I'm now performing. Even in solitary, like you said, you know, we can talk to ourselves, we can find the words. I've got one more word question for you. So <laughs> sure. you, um, you recently published an essay in the Atlantic as kind of a excerpts of your book. And I really love the part in there where you talk about the different grief spiels that you and Gail came up with at different points in your grief, and how they needed to change over time. And I thought, Oh, my gosh, what a practice for people, right? Because so often people don't know, how do I go back to work? How do I tell my friends and family what I need? I guess, two parts of this question. One, what was it like to first implement that idea of like giving people directions really of how to interact with you and Gail? And then how did you need to change those directions over time? Yeah. So Shiva is when I realized I needed to talk about Ruby and Hart and my grief that woke me up to that reality. Um, and then Shiva ends and, and, and it's not, a, it's not structured anymore. And I saw friends would come in through the front gate of our house and, and they would look stricken. And they wouldn't even say, hi, how are you? Because they were too scared to offend me. And they definitely wouldn't say Ruby and Hart's names. Almost all of them would assume that that would be very, very painful for me. So the conversation wouldn't go anywhere, right? <laughs> um, and, I, and I had been taught through 
through the practices of Shiva that I needed to talk to these friends. I needed to talk to them in order for myself to just even understand what was happening. So that's when Gail and I came up with this idea of this, of this grief spiel. So we pulled our friends aside one at a time and said, here's the deal. <laughs> we need to talk about Ruby and Hart and about our grief. And you can't trigger us because we're already triggered. So don't walk on eggshells, please talk to us, ask us questions. And we can't really talk about anything else for too long. Um, we could talk about you and your problems maybe for like five minutes, but then we have to circle back to our grief. That's just where we're at, just emotionally. <laughs> That's our bandwidth. And it was, it was such a gift to our friends that, that they, they said that. They said that, oh my gosh, thank you for giving us this, these ground, ground rules. It was such a relief to everybody. And when I saw that, when I saw how relieved my friends were, I was like, oh, this is valuable. This is a helpful tool that's going to help me and Gail get through these early days. And then our, our spiel changed because as we left acute grief and entered other, other places in our grief, we weren't so desperate. We could talk about other things. And we also discovered new problems, like you said. So one problem we discovered early on was that people were scared to cry in front of us. So they would talk to us, but they wouldn't cry in front of us because they were worried that, they would, that we would start to cry. So they would like run off and cry in the bathroom as if we couldn't tell that that was happening. And it was very strange. And it felt like there's like a, an elephant in the room. And also our relationship to crying had changed. We needed to cry. It felt like this, I wouldn't say release, but that if we didn't cry, it would feel like it was building up in us, like, like a toxic uh, energy in our body that had to get released, or we'd start to feel physically ill. We wanted to cry with people. And we told them that. We said, it's okay to cry. And in fact, it's, it's helpful. And that was helpful. But then they started, they burst into tears. <laughs> and we could cry together. And that was so much better than, than pretending, right? Holding up a front to pretend that it was okay. And then they'd run away and cry and come back. It, it just allowed us to be more honest with each other. Uh, and that was valuable. I think what struck me kind of the most with that idea of like laying the ground rules or giving people kind of like rules of engagement is the capacity that you had, the energy you had to know what you needed and verbalize what you needed. Like that, that really stood out to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think, I think we didn't, no, every time. Sometimes we were confused. Sometimes we were like, you know, this, this friend of ours, it keeps bothering us, but we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. But instead of giving up, we, we would talk about it. Well, what could we say to this person that would actually help the situation? And it involved work. As you said, it, it, it's energy. And it's hard in early grief to have that energy. And I understood why so many, so many other people in grief don't. They're just like, I, I don't have the energy for these people. But I needed my community. I, I realized through, through Shiva, just I, I needed people to help me on this journey. I was terrified losing Ruby and Hart. You know, who was I and why was I alive? And, and it was a scary place to be all alone, Gail and I all alone in the world. So it was worth it. <laughs> we discovered very quickly it was worth it. Put the energy out to keep your community close even if it's socially awkward. And it was sometimes, you know, sending those emails to people like, you know, we had a, a beautiful Zoom together, but nobody asked me about Ruby and Hart. And I can't, 
I can't do that again if that's how it's going to go. You have, someone's got to mention my, my children who are dead. It's <laughs> because it's this catastrophic loss that you're all feeling. It's an elephant in the room, and I can't, I can't be here if, if we're not going to talk a little bit about Ruby and Hart. And they're like, oh, my gosh, of course, of course. I was just too scared. These two words didn't come to me as I was reading that part of your book and then also in the essay, but it makes me think of what you were saying earlier about Ruby and Hart of like kindness and advocacy, Mm. that you and Gail brought kindness and advocacy to your grief and to your community in your grief. And what a way for, I don't want to speak for you, but like for (laughs) Ruby and Hart to be part of supporting you (laughs) in in grieving them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very much inspired by Ruby and Hart's kindness. Um, in the book, I, I quote a, a sort of sermon that Hart gave at his bar mitzvah, and it was all in honor of Ruby. It was it was to support her and her journey through struggling with, with mental health issues. She had OCD, um, and and that was a journey for her to be open about it uh, and to get help. And Hart saw that journey and saw how empowering it was when she did get help finally. And he wrote this beautiful. You know, sermon in honor of her, and and I'm inspired by that kindness. Yeah, I think about them often when I'm feeling extra despair or guilt uh, or shame or you know all the rough the rough feelings that come with grief. It's not just sadness, right? A lot of other really hard feelings come, and I think about them, and I think how they love me and would want would want me to um, let go of some of those rougher feelings. And remember the joy. So yeah, I'm I'm inspired by their kindness. Could we talk a little bit about guilt? You know, in your particular experience, you you write about the idea of survivor's guilt, which is you and Gail were in the car, you were driving the car, and also like surviving in the world. Like your kids no longer get to grow and change, and you do. Um, so yeah, share a little bit about. Well, it's like, how do you share a little bit about guilt? But whatever you might want to talk about with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, some people are, are surprised. They're like, oh, this a drunk driver hits you. So she's at fault. So you're you're good. <laughs> it's like, well, no, <laughs> that's not how guilt works. We all work, our brains work overtime to find some way in which we could have done something differently to keep our, our children or our loved ones alive. You know, I, I share in the book, I was stunned at this moment where my sister, she lives in New Jersey, we're in Los Angeles, and, and I could hear this anguish in her voice over the phone. She said, I, I, why didn't I call you to tell you not to go on that, on that car trip? And I was like, the idea that, that she thought of that and felt anguish over it, she didn't even know we were going on this short trip. <laughs> and she's across the country. So it would be so, it made no sense. You know, her, her feelings of guilt made zero sense. But I think we all work overtime to figure out how we might have done something differently to keep them alive. And then we feel bad about why we didn't do that. And something that my therapist said, which really, I think, helped me, is that part of that mental gymnastics is our way of trying to feel like we're more in control. That in a way, the idea that we're not in control in this world and that things happen to us and that we can't stop them is is more terrifying than to think that we are in control and we just made a mistake and we, we could have fixed it. Um, and also that we're living in a way in denial that as long as I'm thinking about all the things I could have done differently that would have kept them alive, I'm living in the past where they're still alive. 
um, kind of sucked into this denial. And it's nice to be there because in the past they're alive, but I'm not in the past, I'm in the present. And Ruby and Hart were killed. And so to dwell in that guilty feeling universe where, you know, what if, what if, what if, it's a, it's a form of denial. It's not living here in the present. Yeah, that I, I really appreciated that. I hadn't thought, I mean, I've thought a lot about how our minds will do anything we can to figure out what's one thing I could have done to make this different because this is so painful. I don't want to feel this pain ever again. And I watch it with, you know, young kids at Dougie Center, you know, like I wore a red shirt the day my mom died. I'll never wear a red shirt again or, you know, all those kinds of things that they come up with. But the idea that the guilt is our way of staying back when they were still here. Mm. I hadn't thought about it from that idea before. So thank yeah. you to you and to your uh, therapist for <laughs> sharing that insight. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I found it helpful. I want to live in the in the real world. I don't want to live in a fantasy, no matter how sweet that fantasy is. So um, every time I have a, let's say a new experience, there's a guilt involved because here I'm doing something that they never got to do. Uh, I'm, I'm continuing to live life uh, and having these experiences that they will never have. And that can come with a lot of guilt. And it can, I think it can really lead to more suffering for people in grief because they, they're not allowing themselves to, to feel joy alongside their grief. Um, that's how I feel often. So it's a struggle for me. You know, I, I, I want to be able to feel joy. And so the feelings of guilt come with them. And, and how do I just sort of live with both of those? How, how do I move forward and be okay? You know, like here I'm having a wonderful time and I'm missing Ruby and Hart. And so the, the idea of holding joy and pain in the same hand um, seems like a part of my journey. That comes through so clearly in your book. I, I know you articulate it multiple times of this idea of joy living and existing with grief mm. and that happiness existing with pain, not that they cancel each other out in any way. And I think that is a, a heavy lift for people as they are entering this world of grief of like, doesn't one cancel the other out? How can I live in having these things coexisting? So yeah. I appreciate that that's a through line coming uh, in your book. And, you know, early in your book, I think it might've even been even in the introduction, you write about how you railed a little against this idea that there's like no right way to do grief and no wrong way to do grief. And it's different for everybody. And you'll kind of just figure it out. Uh -huh. And it kind of caught me up short because I'm like, oh, <laughs> as a purveyor of those statements in the grief world, that those, you know, originally were rooted in this sort of liberation idea, right? Mm -hmm. That there's no right way or wrong way to do grief. And if you're still grieving yeah. 10, 20, 60 years later, there's nothing wrong with you. I was like, oh, but maybe it's time to take the next step in that. <laughs> and so so what I came through was that you just wanted something to do, you know, like, mm. what do I do? And your book is really a, an expansion of all the things that you do. But I wonder if you could share a few ways that you figured out how to like, quote unquote, do grief for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I first wanted to unpack a little bit that, that because it is, it is complicated, you know, the idea of everybody grieves in their own way and in their own time. I totally understand exactly what you, what you said, it where it's coming from, which is a very empowering thing. Is we're not, no one's being judged here, um, and and of course you're going to grieve for the rest of your life, honestly. So there is no clock on it in that sense. But for me, it felt like the phrase "everyone grieves in their own way" felt like, well, then it's up to you. Good luck to you. 
And I wanted some guidance because I had no idea how to, how to move through these feelings uh, that were so overwhelming. And, um, and I felt so passive at first, uh, just a passive recipient of this wave of horror. And I also felt like I was going to lose my mind. I felt like, you know, I lost my identity. Who I was was Ruby and Hart's dad and, and that's gone. And who am I? Why am I alive? And this pain is so terrifying. Help me. And so the idea of like, you know, everyone does their own thing was not helpful to me. So, um, and, and also I found by talking to people that actually there, we had a lot of commonality in our journeys through grief. Uh, and I came to sort of re reframe it and hopefully not in a judgmental way, but I feel like we all avoid our grief in our own ways, but the actual moments of actively grieving are, are basically the same. It's, it's us articulating our feelings uh, in some form or other, some kind of expressing how we're feeling about the people we've lost, because that's how we process anything. When we process joy the same way, like we invite people into weddings, <laughs> We, we, we see a, a funny movie, we talk about it, right? We have a wonderful experience, we wanna share because that's how we literally process our lives. And so I think for grief, it's the same. And yet there's such a, a reticence to talk about grief and it's painful, it hurts to talk about grief, right? So it's obviously fun to talk about a funny movie and it's not so fun to talk about our pure feelings of agony, but I feel like we need to do that if we're gonna move through it and we might avoid it because of course we can't, nobody's grieving nonstop. We all avoid grief at times, of course, <laughs> uh, we need to, but, uh, but I think understanding that is helpful. And that people say, if you don't feel like it, just put it off for the next five, 10 years. That's not really gonna work, honestly. I think we all need to feel the pain, you know, as hard as that, as hard as that is to say and hear. Uh, because if you love somebody and they're gone, you're you're going to feel the pain. The pain comes from love. It's, it's okay to feel that pain, even though it's scary. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's always the idea, like we engage with grief or grief engages with us. It's like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, could you share a few examples of things that you on your own or you and Gail together came up with to engage with your grief? Yeah. Well, one of the things that really helped us was the idea of rituals. Uh, and this again, we were first really introduced to it again through the Jewish practices of mourning, which is, so the first week of, of mourning after the funeral is called, it's called Shiva. That's the first week in seven. And then Shloshim is the first 30 days after the funeral. And Shloshim means 30. And uh, you're supposed to mark that. It's, it's, a, it's an important milestone in your, in your grief journey where you're, you're in an incredibly acute pain the first week and in the first 30 days, you're still in acute pain, but it's slightly different. And then after that ends, it's slightly different. Now your grief. And so you're supposed to mark it with a, a ritual of some sort, but they don't tell you what that should be. So it's up to you to create it. And so Gail and I thought really hard about like, what would be a meaningful thing to do? We want to gather our friends in a meaningful place uh, and have a meaningful ceremony that honors our grief and Ruby and heart. And, uh, and we, we made this beautiful uh, ceremony, beautiful ritual at the Los Angeles uh, Arboretum. It was a favorite park for all of us to go to. We loved it, the four of us. We dedicated two trees, 
And the trees are these amazing, beautiful Engelman oaks. When you look up, it looks like they're like hugging each other, these two trees. It's, it's just remarkable and special spot because we knew it would become a sacred place for us once we did this ceremony there. And we, we once again gathered our friends together uh, and we cried together and we laughed together and we told Ruby and Heart stories and we uh, someone sang a beautiful song and people shared shared their feelings. And that was helpful to us. It organized our days, planning the ritual, organized our days, which was helpful because we're so lost in early grief. What are we doing? It gave us something to do, be active and engaged in our grief. And it brought our community together and helped us with support. So we kept inventing rituals as the years went went by. All the you know scary milestones, you know, the first their first birthdays after the crash the first anniversary of the crash, our birthdays, Valentine's Day, Christmas, like all these holidays are suddenly so challenging. And how can we approach them actively is what we were thinking. Yeah, it seemed like there was a part in your book where you talk about like the the key ingredients for you in terms of a ritual around grief of honoring them, doing something active. I don't remember the third one. <laughs> uh, well, probably building community, but... Um, uh, I have to look at my book. I don't remember which what my three points. Good. We'll go with those for now. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> Someone will fact check it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I learned those lessons again from the Jewish traditions. Like, what, what is this ritual? What's what's it gonna What's it gonna do? How's it gonna help us? Yeah. You know, one of the the not so true truisms about grief is you know that the death of a child leads immediately to divorce that if parents are together, they're going to not be together. How did you and Gail learn to grieve together separately? Yeah. Yeah, first of all, several people told us about that, <laughs> that 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 not, not true statistic. Uh, and I was like, why are you saying this to me? But then I discovered the origins of it. I read this amazing article in, uh, in this online journal, TAPS. It's in support of, of veterans grieving and uh and the on the author I, I quote her in the in the book she got to the bottom of it which is there was this very powerful book i think called the bereaved parent is the title i have it somewhere but um where the author states that 90 percent of all uh married couples struggle with marital challenges in the first year after the death of a child and that somehow got you know through a terrible game of, of telephone somehow got turned into divorce and became like a fact in people's minds. Oh, you're going to get divorced. It's just what happens. Uh, and of course, some some couples do get divorced, but some couples get divorced in the general population. And in fact, the rate of divorce is actually lower than the general population because now there have been many studies, uh, thanks to compassionate friends, that have shown that. A lot of times, the death of a child brings brings the parents closer. They are the only people in this world that share this this terrible, terrible loss in this in this very specific way. Gail and I certainly clung to each other uh, in the aftermath of Ruby and Hart being killed. And sometimes we would be in different places in our grief. And that was also helpful. If one of us was particularly despondent one day and the other one wasn't, that was helpful. Uh, and sometimes we were amazingly in sync. We were thinking about the same, like literally the same thought was coming to our mind, whatever it was. You know, a specific memory or a specific relationship to the struggle of grief or whatever it was. We were, we were remarkably similar at times, not always. We're both theater, 
theater kids so uh, and writers. So I think words words came to us maybe more easily than others. I don't know, but but we talked a lot about our grief, um, and that helped. You know, for a lot of people, there's no one particular person or circumstance. Well, sometimes there's the circumstance, but often there's not one particular person to to hold responsible for the death of someone in our lives. And in your case, that's not true. There is a, a person whose name you know and whose face you know who got drunk, got high, got in the car, hit your car, and killed your kids. And I just wonder, what has it been like to have an actual you know, subject for that responsibility. Yeah. It's, it's complicated, of course. I mean, one thing is that, you know, I would imagine that my anger would just be focused on her, but it's not. It just spills over everywhere. It doesn't feel like I don't walk around thinking like, oh, it's all her. And I, I'm more just angry at the universe for, for this happening to me. You know, I think that's pretty common for people who've lost someone, especially suddenly, uh, traumatically. It's like the universe took away our children. And I have all this anger that I have to manage and and figure out how to give it a healthy outlet and also not let my anger turn me bitter. I struggle with that. I definitely have found ways that I think help me. Uh, And one of them is kindness, actually, discovering that even if I'm really feeling in an ugly place, if I start to just act nice, I start to feel nice. <laughs> it's like a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. It's like, I'll just pretend to be nice for a little while, just do nice things even though I don't want to. And sure enough, oh, it actually helps me. I feel I feel better now. <laughs> I feel nice. Now I want to do nice things. <laughs> um, it's real, it's genuine now. I'm not faking it. Um, uh, and that was really helpful. But I also, I don't, I don't think about her too often. Uh, actually, in this moment, I've forgotten her name, which is interesting. I'm sure if I thought about it, it would probably come back to me what her name is. But I, I, uh, I kind of like that I, I'm not thinking about her because it's, that brings me to the crash and the death. And I'd rather be thinking about Ruby and Hart in life and how wonderful they were uh, and, and how their spirits continue to inspire people and inspire me. Yeah, that I don't, I try not to think too much about that person. On the other hand, I know that that's a, that's a place of privilege because I know many people whose children were killed by somebody who was drunk or high. And that person went to trial and got, you know, a year and six months behind bars, if even. And those friends of mine have to think about the reality that person's now they're out. Um, they're out of jail and, and that injustice, they have to deal with that. I don't think it's a great feeling. I have the luxury of not thinking about her because I know right now she's behind bars. She's in jail awaiting sentencing and I, the trial hasn't happened and I, I get to sort of not think about her. Um, but of course, uh, if a trial happens, I'll have to think about it a lot more. There's so many more layers to that experience. Yeah, yeah, it's so complicated. You know, there's a part of me that that wants a trial because then I get to, I wrote a victim impact statement that I think is very powerful and honest and I feel like I have this need to, but then I also think I don't want to be cross-examined by by their attorney and and be in a court and 
and relive all those, all that darkness. So yes, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, but it's risky, right, to, to step into a, a sphere where you have some control over the narrative, right? Because you get to share your victim impact statement, mm. but then other people get to try to <laughs> create different narratives that you are on the receiving end of. Yeah. You know, Colin, a bit back, you mentioned something I wanted to ask a little bit more about. You said, like, in those early days after Ruby and Hart were killed, you were like, well, who who am I? Mm. I'm not... I'm not a dad anymore. And I wonder how do you relate to that role now? Cause that is something I hear so often from people. Am I still a sister? Am I still a parent? Yeah. Like how are you, how are you still, obviously you are still <laughs> Ruby and Hart's dad, but how do you continue to embody that role? Yeah. Um, yeah. Being a parent was so central to who I was. Uh, I, I really honestly was Ruby and Hart's dad before anything else, uh, even before a husband or a son or brother. And to have that central piece of my identity taken away or changed, because now I'm I'm a father of two dead children, and that's different, very different. I I felt like and and Gail felt like parenthood was still so important to us. And Ruby at one point had said about a year and a half before she was killed, she said we should foster adopt. And we're like what? And she said, yes, we should. We have such a loving family. <laughs> she was so sweet. Um, we should foster adopt. Uh, there are kids out there who need families. And I was like, I was like oh, no, thank you. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a family. I'm, 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 I'm full to the gills. Uh, but now I'm not. And so Gail and I are, in fact, uh, fostering to adopt two, two children, a 12-year-old a girl and a 13-year-old boy, brother and sister. And we're early in the process. They moved in two and a half months ago, no, almost three months ago now. So it's still pretty new. And it is, it is like you said earlier about, you know, the joy doesn't erase the pain. Having other children in our home, in Ruby and Hart's rooms, they're now these other children's rooms. I'm not being cool, I'm just not, not really allowed to say their names in, <laughs> in public because we're still foster parents and we have the adoption hasn't happened yet. But, um, it's very painful and also very good. So, you know, my, my, my new son was talking about Hart as his brother uh, and, a, and a trait that they shared. Uh, and it was so beautiful. And, and he loves uh, wearing Hart's jacket. We went out to the snow and he had on Hart's jacket. And uh, I think at first he was a little uncomfortable. And then suddenly it, it was meaningful to him. Like it was kind of beautiful. And, and, he, and he loved having that jacket. And it's hard for me to see. <laughs> There's Hart's jacket, but in a way, I feel like it's honoring Hart and Ruby. It's like keeping them even more present in our lives because we can't, we can't not look at these these new children. New children, strange to say it that way, but um, and not think about Ruby and Hart at the same time. I talk about how it stretches our heart. I feel like our hearts are stretched, uh, and it hurts, but it feels good. It feels good. So so we're continuing to parent even as we grieve. Yeah. Well, Colin, as we come sort of to the end of our time together, is there anything else you want to find the words for today? Not to uh, use a pun on your book title, but is there <laughs> anything else you want to put out into the airwaves with your words? Oh, this has been such a, a marvelous conversation. I don't know what else I wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of some Great closing thought. Oh, I, I do want to, I guess I want to talk about um, the idea of leaning into the pain, which sort of ties into what we were just talking about with the stretching of the heart and how it hurts. Like, 
I was very terrified of the pain early on. And I feel like um, my relationship to that pain has changed in a way that I found very helpful, um, which is thinking about the, the, the pain of, of grief as being something healthy and coming from love. And, and it hurts so badly, but if it can be okay with it and not be so scared of it, it does, it does help me to lead a more full life. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, go ahead, put on heart's jacket. (laughs) And it's like, ah, that's going to hurt me (laughs) so much. (laughs) And yet it's so much better than just having it in a dusty drawer somewhere. Right. Yeah. Leaning into the pain has, has helped me move forward in life. It reminds me of a, the quote that Ruby loved that your wife Gail had inscribed on the wooden sign of like, I can't remember. I will, I will not get it right. Maybe you, cause you yes. had it right there. Maybe you could say it for us. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, uh, it's from Helen Keller. So it says security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to take the daring adventure. <laughs> the daring adventure of pain and joy and remembrance and honoring. And thank you for taking time today to have us all come on that adventure with you for a little bit and for the book, Finding the Words, that is going to be out in the world very soon. So yeah, just grateful for your time and really grateful to get to know Ruby and Hart. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. And listeners out there, I say it each and every single time, but thank you for being part of our community, for tuning in to the show, for sharing episodes with people who may be helped by something that you're hearing uh, today or any other day that you tune in to Grief Out Loud. If you want to connect with me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That's also our main website where you can go to find free resources like tip sheets, activity sheets, um, information about our local programming and other organizations similar to ours around the country. It's also where you'll find each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. And we always want to give thanks to the Chester Steffen Endowment Fund for their support of Grief Out Loud. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time.